Hello and welcome. You're listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. Hello and welcome to episode 391 of Writers Aloud. In this episode, Julia Copus speaks with Anne Morgan about building a varied writing career, the need to be brave, creating a new poetic form, and the days when the words just won't come. Of the more than 500 writers who have held Royal Literary Fund fellowships in the past two decades, Julia Copus has to be one of the most versatile. The author of four poetry collections, including her most recent, Girlhood, which won the inaugural Derek Walcott Prize for Poetry, she has written a biography of Charlotte Mew, a number of successful children's books and several radio dramas. I first came across her work in my own time as a Royal Literary Fund Fellow when her book Brilliant Writing Tips for Students became one of my go-to resources at the University of Kent. So it was a pleasure for me to have a chance to talk to her and hear more about her work. So Julia, where did writing start for you? Well, I wrote as a child, I was one of these kids that stayed in the lunch hour in primary school, so scribbling away, writing 10 pages when two had been asked for. And it was actually stories that I started with rather than poetry, although I did have a poem published in a comic. When I was seven, I I sent in a poem to Tammy and an envelope came back through the post and it said Tammy Reader on the envelope and I came home and my mum had written on it not known at this address I saw it on the side and I realized what it was Uh, (laughs) oh my goodness um, because you you know she thought that was the name Tammy Reader so they'd given me a two pound postal order and it was so exciting my first taste of sending something out into the world and getting a, a response a positive response and as you know it's addictive so so that's sort of where it started I think. Wow and of course you're best known for your poetry I and mean, you're an award-winning poet but you do write other things as well don't you and in an industry that loves to pigeonhole writers you're very impressive because you've you've written non-fiction you've written stories you've written writing guides for students and for children how have you managed to have this incredibly wide-ranging career what's the secret most of those things came out of writer's block <laughs> the brilliant writing tips which came out in i think 2009 was a direct result of my work as an rlf fellow at Exeter University. I'd just been through uh, quite a painful divorce and brought out a poetry book fairly recently. And I just couldn't, couldn't write poetry. And I was trying to think of all these new ways to explain different bits of punctuation and structure to the, to the students at Exeter and finding that, you know, some of these really caught on. And so it was extraordinary, actually. I just wrote to Palgrave Macmillan and said that I had an idea for a very short kind of pocketbook on this subject of tips for undergraduates. And I think it was very lucky timing. They wrote back straight away and said, well, we we were thinking of doing a a pocketbook series. Either it was good timing or they sort of nicked my idea and, (laughs) (laughs) and pretended it was. So that came about like that. It's all kind of 
by accident. Uh, the, the children's books, I write sort of rhyming picture books as well that are published also by Faber. That came about because my adult poetry tends to be more serious and, you know, I've got an, another side to me, I suppose, and I wanted to explore that more or to write about or use the more fun side of myself in my writing. And so, yeah, I, I wrote to Faber and said that I'd like to bring out a picture book and I'd written this uh, first draft. And again, it was extraordinarily lucky because they they had stopped doing picture books for a number of years and they were just about to start a picture book series again. And they liked my manuscript, had to do quite a lot of work on it because people think that picture books are very easy, I think, but they're not. So they're really, really hard. And so my first picture book, Hog in the Fog, was one of the very first, first of a quartet of picture books that Faber started in their new series. Uh, so that was really lucky as well. Finally, the biography, I originally intended to do something a lot shorter than it ended up being. So I loved the work of Charlotte Mew. I first came across her when we were both in an anthology and it was a century of women's verse in English. And Charlotte Mew was the very first poet in that book. And I was almost the last. So we were, we were born exactly a hundred years apart. And I wrote to Faber and said, can I do something short on Charlotte Mew? I want to be part of the Faber Poet to Poet series where a contemporary poet sort of introduces the work of a poet that they love. And they said, well, that series is dormant at the moment, but maybe think of something longer on Charlotte Mew. And, you know, seven years later, <laughs> yeah, I make it sound easy. I mean, not easy, but... You do. <laughs> well, it, it's amazing. Serendipity seems to play a part, but it's obvious that hard work is a, a big part of it yes. as well. Yes, um, definitely. Yeah. And, and being open to possibility by the sound of it. Is it open to other ideas and other other ways of thinking about things yes I think so and I think I just get curious and a little bit envious of you know I want to know what it's like to write in another genre and can I do it it's a challenge isn't it um to find out if it's uh, if it can be done <laughs> well my daughter and I have been reading my bed as an air balloon oh. lately she's oh. four and she really she really loves it loves and and what i love about it actually is the playfulness which you talk about but but also the the quality of the writing the language the the use of the language um is so oh, beautiful and that's often not true in many children's books i mean there are fantastic children's books there are some amazing children's books but there are quite a number that i've read through in recent years yeah. um that leave quite a bit to be desired in terms of the quality of the writing you know a certain sloppiness or laziness and or in some cases a certain po-facedness about using language correctly almost yes. as if we must present children only with the correct uses of language yeah. or words yeah. that actually exist whereas with yours you have you invent creatures and you, you bend language and do interesting things with it and it's really joyful it's really fun well that's so nice to hear and particularly that your daughter loves it thank you for that yeah I I mean, children love language, don't they? I think they love sounds and they're very, very inventive themselves with language. And, you know, it's it's about trying to pick up some of their joy, 
I think, in The Sound of Words. Because actually that book is a specular poem, isn't it? The, the form that you... It is. It you is. created yeah. it. Yeah. Do you want to explain what specular poetry is before we, we go on what the yeah. specular form is? So a specular, I'm not, I'm not sure the word specular and fun go together at all. <laughs> um. It certainly does in this book. <laughs> well, yeah. So it came out of a... I was writing a poem about a difficult memory and you know the way that your mind sort of circles back when you think about something traumatic and it keeps going back to the beginning of the story and so the beginning and the end kind of get blurred and I was working on this poem and it it just it wasn't working it wasn't very good and I noticed that I was repeating certain phrases and I thought what would happen if I do this more consciously so that's how the form came about and a specular poem is two stanzas, two verses, and the second verse is a mirror of the first. So it uses exactly the same lines, but in reverse order and differently punctuated. Uh, so the last line of the first verse becomes the first of the second. So it's sort of like a palindrome, I guess. And, and I, I called it specular because my publisher wanted me to give it a name. And speculum is Latin for a mirror. So also a rather unpleasantly cold medical instrument. But <laughs> Yes, I was just thinking that, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so that's what it is. And it just occurred to me that it might work well for a, a children's book, again, to do something a bit more fun with it. Originally, that book, My Bed is an Air Balloon, Faber were thinking of bringing out with two covers so that you could read it from either end. But it just the logistics became so difficult. How do you flip it round? And, and we couldn't do it in the end. But it's a really big shame because I'm not sure everyone realises, as you have, that it is a mirror of itself yeah I mean I love I love the form I I really enjoyed it with my daughter in that book but also in in your poetry um it to me it feels particularly in your adult poems it feels almost like swimming out to the far reaches of a poem and then turning back towards oh, land yeah. and swimming that's that the reading experience to me particularly in some of the poems that deal with you know the heavier subject matter you, you're really getting into the depths of something and then turning back and finding your way back yeah, through it sort of to re a place exploring of... it from a slightly different angle. Mm, yeah, exactly. And and I, I think it's really powerful. I was wondering when you're when you're writing a poem, do you know instantly that it's going to take that form? Mm. We should say, of course, that not all your poems by any means take this form, but it is a form that you've written in numerous times. Mm. But do you start out thinking this will be a specular poem, or does it occur to you as you're working on an idea that this is suited to that particular form? Well, I think it occurs to me, um, but you have to decide fairly early on because in effect, it is like writing two poems at once. So every line you write, you're testing how it will read both ways, you know, what it will lead on to in the next line and then what that line going backwards will. Mm. Uh, so you, you're writing two at the same time. I think some of my specular poems work better than others and there is... I don't know whether it's just my own self-perceived expectation. I, I feel there's an expectation that I will do it at least once or twice in each new collection. Sometimes I will set out to, oh, I better write a specular poem. But even then, I think it's really important to marry that 
very particular form to the content you know why why write it like that i mean it is bloody difficult to do so that i, th I think there, there has to be a reason for doing it and one of those as i've said is is the cyclic nature of memory the way it circles back round on itself yeah i think all my poems actually have to do with going back into the past all my specular poems with going back into the past and coming out to the present but i think you have to be really careful with a form like that or in fact any form like sonnet or you know anything that it's worn as lightly as possible so that it doesn't draw too much attention to itself you know because then the form becomes more important than the actual words yeah i mean i think it's something that's really powerful in your work is not only the way you use form but also references because your work is very referential you have huge numbers of things uh, the classics psychoanalysis all kinds of different things that get worked into it mm. and yet you manage to do so in a way that whereas in some poets hands those things can feel quite intimidating or possibly exclusive and if you don't know the context of those things or the the background then you're you're somehow not able to yes. understand the poem whereas yeah. you're very careful to give the reader without patronizing the reader give the reader what they need to know in order to appreciate the point of these things that you're bringing in and so it's it's lovely because it doesn't feel as though you're shutting people out or you know that someone who maybe didn't know about Lacan before they started reading Girlhood can't understand the poems that refer to his work I just was interested to hear how you walk that line how you think about that how you know because that's a tricky thing to do to to bring in such a wide range of things and yet make everyone feel that they can access them that really takes some skill, I think. Again, it's, it's really delightful to hear that. Thank you. I like reading as much as I like writing and I don't like feeling patronised and I don't like being made to feel ignorant. So I don't like it, for example, in, in readings where the author says, as you know, lack on blah, 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 because I, I usually don't know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I didn't know much about Lacan if anything, before I started writing Girlhood. So there's that. And I think the other thing is that when I'm using, for example, you know, a piece of Greek myth, I'm doing it because I feel a, a very personal uh, connection to that myth. So sometimes the most personal poetry can actually seem the least personal. I'm thinking of a a poem in my third collection, The World's Too Small as Humans. So that poem is called Hero, and in the legend of Hero and Leander, Hero was a, a priestess of Aphrodite, and she'd taken this vow of chastity, but she very soon regretted the decision when she fell in love with a young man called Leander, uh, who lived across the, the water from her on the other side of the Hellespont, so they found a, a way around this and uh, the idea was that they would wait until after dark when Hero would light some oil lamps, both to sort of guide Leander on his way to her and to signal to him that the coast was clear. And that worked very well until one terrible night when the lamps blew out in a, in a storm. So, so that was the background, but actually... What I was thinking of when I started writing this poem was a night when I was waiting for somebody who was very important to me to come and come and see me 
on a on a dark night and it was uh, quite a precarious situation so it was in, it's incredibly personal it's you know i am hero in the poem and i'm waiting for this person to come to me yeah so i think i hope that the the intensity of emotion comes across and that it doesn't just read as a kind of exercise in showing off that you know something about greek myth for example i absolutely think it does i mean that emotional reality one of the things that i think is really powerful is actually the way you use the unsaid as well though that you know things often it's the gaps that what you don't say in the poems so a poem like the grievers for example where you almost go around the edges of what it is to lose some someone and you don't really talk directly about grief you talk about the the effects of grief or what it is to step away from life for a while and come back to it but in a very light way that actually I think brings people almost to the brink of what language can do and makes them look over into that very personal experience which perhaps each of us can only feel in our own unique way perhaps there isn't a precise way of describing that for everyone and so you take us to the point where we're able to glimpse that for ourselves and and often in your poems I mean sometimes it's it's about looking at something that's on the periphery as a way of allowing the 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 emotional power to play out off scene almost off stage um so like a shard of pottery becomes the focus for when a a beloved pet is dying or you know something like that Mm. I I find that really interesting and I wondered because in my writing when I try and do something like that I often find that in the first draft I say too much and I'm too sort of on the nose with things and then I have to take it out is is it similar for you do you pare down or does it automatically come like that yes yeah absolutely no absolutely I I do yeah I I often say too much so you know yeah I think probably most writers do start out saying too much that's the joy isn't it of an early draft no one has to see quite how bad it is <laughs> um but i think it's wonderful what you've just said and i think it is it's exactly that isn't it it's about creating because our experiences are all different and, and unique when you're writing about something a universal experience like grief you have to create that space don't you for for the reader to step into and fill in the, the the pieces in their own way. Otherwise, you are too much in the poem yourself, I guess, or the whatever piece of writing it is. And I think you do need to, to create those spaces that will allow what you're writing to resonate individually with, with people so they feel they can own the writing themselves. Because really, once it's published, as, as you know, it's not in your ownership anymore it belongs to the reader i think you have to be brave i believe strongly that you know life as it goes on around us has its own strangeness and you know innate mystery i suppose and that we need the courage when we write to trust to that and that does mean to a certain degree surrendering control Uh, which I'm not always good at doing, but, you know, you have to learn to do it, don't you? And just allowing the mystery of an experience to reveal itself. Um, And I think that's what's meant by, 
you know, that sort of overused phrase, poetic truth. And so the Greeks had this um, word for truth, the ancient Greeks, aletheia, and that literally means a state of being unhidden. So it's like, you know, it implies that something has been hidden and you're sort of unhiding it. And I think that's what should happen when we read as well as write. Yeah. I think something else, though, that you also do is really, really well is, is to, to anticipate the movement of the reader's mind. So I often found reading your poetry that I would get to a line and find that you had got there ahead of me. You knew the question that would be in my mind after the previous line or, or what image might already be sort of working its way towards the surface of my awareness. And it was there. And it was quite an uncanny experience <laughs> at times um, to find myself anticipated in that way. That's that's so interesting. I wonder if that really would have been in your mind or if the poem has made you feel like it's inevitable or like yeah I, I I don't know I suppose I mean thinking about it in terms of storytelling which is what I do you mm. know you're always trying to deliver a, an ending that feels that fits that feels satisfactory that feels as though it's necessary and yet is not obvious is not so yeah. I suppose in the same way you're trying to anticipate what a reader's mind or steer a reader's mind in a certain direction so that they feel but it with your writing though it was, it was a to me it was it felt as though I was I was being met like repeatedly in, mm. in several poems I read it, that, that oh you, she's got there she knows what I'm she knows what I'm thinking here. She's no. Yeah. It, it was a, it was a very, I mean, really delightful experience, but also slightly kind of uncanny at times because it was, it was sort of really astonishing. It felt as though I'd been found out or I'd been, you know, I'd been caught. That's so interesting. Well, well, two things. One, I used to when I was a very little girl, I used to see auras around people. Uh, my parents took me to the doctors have my eyesight tested and so on and it, it must be a very enlightened GP because he said well you know lots of young children see or not lots I don't know how many but um, some young children see auras and it's something that sort of disappears when we're older so I have um, had a few psychic experiences I don't think that's what's going on here I just slightly worry though because there's a I do think the element of surprise is so important and I think it's it's lovely to feel met like that. I wonder if it's slightly a, a fault of mine though. I think what I would really like to do, and maybe this is sort of a development in me, is to move on from that and to just completely surprise you, <laughs> surprise the reader. I, I love that too when I read a poem and there's a sort of a, a thump of inevitability. I Oh, I don't think it's a thump though. I think it, it, to me it was a surprise because it felt, it felt as though I was in dialogue with someone who at that moment knew my mind better than I did. Oh, well, that's, that's fantastic. What, that was hear. the feeling. Oh, well, thank you. Um, yeah. And which was a real surprise because, you know, that's particularly when it's a writer who you've never met in person, you know, that's quite a... That's quite a, yeah. a thing to experience. So, no, I, I, it wasn't that it felt like, a oh, you know, this was predictable by any means. It's just sort of, uh, I've got your number. I, you know, I knew <laughs> what you were going to, what you'd think. Speaking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Oh, well, that's exactly. great. That's great. Thank <laughs> you. 
there, there's a lovely quote. Um, you said you said once that writing poems is a bit like panning for gold. Mm. You have to be prepared to sit for a long while in the cold murk of the riverbed and grow heavy with alluvial dust for the sake of the gold it contains. Um, wow, which did is I say that? Wonderful image. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You did say that. Yeah, it r- rings um, a bell. Yeah. <laughs> and and I just wondered what does that process of sitting involve? Is that writing words is that sitting with ideas is it making notes how how do you sit with something before the gold appears yeah there's something to do with fear here i think you have to begin have the courage to do that in periods when i can't i forget that actually that that is needed when it works i often start with a brainstorm of just words and and notes and so i'll cover a piece of a4 paper with with that you know maybe a3 paper sometimes and yes there's a lot of a lot of dross and a lot of silt and then it does feel a little bit like even you know more than panning for for gold it's like things float to the surface and will stand out on the page they very often have a certain rhythm and that's a sort of seed for the rest of the poem. The poem might take its meter from a couple of phrases that have lit up on the page. Yeah, I'm thinking of a film, A Beautiful Mind. Oh yes, so, yeah. And um, the main character, he's got a mental illness, I can't remember what. Schizophrenia. Right, so he has schizophrenia, that's right. And there's one bit where he thinks that messages are being sent to him uh, via newspapers. And he pins up all these different bits of newspaper on the wall. And the director sort of communicated this by some words just sort of being lit up on the page. And I think it it happens a little bit like that when I'm writing a, a, a poem. It's a sort of clutter of brainstormed notes. And then hopefully something gets lit up or emerges out of that that mess. Does it always happen? Or are there days where the words go down and nothing lights up? Oh my God, there are many days when I... (laughs) (laughs) That's such a relief to hear. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, of course, yeah. And there are days when I just don't feel I can write at all. And of course, you know, as writers, we have to make money. So... We do things like make podcasts and other, <laughs> you know, hopefully, I mean, we're so lucky to do that, I think, because that is also very cr- creative. But yes, there's lots of times when it doesn't work. And I feel that you're always beginning, you know, so even if a book has won a prize or something, there is the the question in your mind of whether you can do that again. And you want to do do something slightly differently anyway. You don't want to go on repeating yourself. So, yeah, I think it's a, cr- a question of keeping, you know, what's sometimes called the beginner's mind and not getting too confident, which is just as well, because I think most writers <laughs> are severely lacking in self-confidence. But in a way, I was speaking to Don Patterson about this years ago, and he said it's when that doubting mind goes and you feel absolutely secure, that's when you've got to worry, because there should be some doubt there, you know? Mm, mm. Poetry seems to be going through 
bit of a purple patch at the moment there are a lot of amazing young poets coming forward and mm. and it's cool it's it's um, you know on instagram and on various social media channels poems are, are big news how do you feel the discipline is doing these days and what would you like to see happening in the years ahead i really love the diversity that's around at the moment you know, not not just in terms of race and gender and very, very many more minorities writing and being published, but also in terms of form and lack of form. And, you know, it's just a very exciting. I think I think social media has something to do with that. I've got a friend who said she felt a bit like a lyric dinosaur in the context of all of, all of that. But I think what's dangerous is if there becomes some sort of divide between old and new. I mean, in a way that's inevitable. You always have the new coming in and kicking out the the old. But I think there has to be respect on both sides. I mean, the ideal thing would be if both sides, you know, meaning the sort of very new writers and more so-called established writers people who've been publishing for a while if they could be more porous and open to each other's work and sort of that's where the exciting stuff happens that sort of cross pollination or, or whatever i think it's it's dangerous to dismiss what has been before because there is some amazing <laughs> poetry that has been written previously so so that's the that's the only danger i think but otherwise i think the diversity is fantastic and uh, it's a rich a rich time for poetry very exciting excellent well julia copus thank you so much for talking to me it's been a great pleasure it's been such a pleasure for me and thank you so much that was julia copus in conversation with anne morgan you can find out more about Julia on her website at www.juliacopus.com. And that concludes episode 391, which was recorded and produced by Anne Morgan. Coming up in episode 392 in Me and My Audience, RLF writers share their experiences of encounters with readers. We hope you'll join us. You've been listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. To subscribe to podcasts and to find out more about the work of the RLF, please visit our website at www.rlf.org.uk. Thanks for listening.